To begin, I want to share a prayer with you. This is a prayer that was prayed a very long time ago by a man named Paul. He had some friends that he really loved, and so he prayed for them. And we have the prayer that he prayed for them, and this is it. He prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, those he's talking about his friends, that may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. It's a really remarkable prayer, and I wonder if you know this, this is a prayer that you could pray for the people that you love too. Did you know that? Sometimes people ask you to pray for them. Sometimes it's a little uh, confusing or you're not sure how to pray for somebody. One of the ways that you can pray for people is you can use prayers from the Bible. And this one, it comes from the book of Ephesians. It's in the first chapter. This is a prayer that you can pray for people that you love. And this prayer has been prayed by your pastors, by Christian and Michelle and myself for you. I prayed this prayer for you this week. And so I want to spend just a little bit of time uh, giving us... Um, some focus on what this prayer is for. When we pray this prayer for you, what are we praying for? Here's the first thing. It's a prayer that you would see the hope that you have. Do you see that towards the, to the last half of it? It's a prayer that you would see that you have a real and certain hope. And when God has hope for you, when there's a hope that you can look forward to that's based upon God, it's stronger than the hope that we have. It isn't hope based upon our weak wishes. And... The truth is, is usually when we use the, the word hope, we mean wish. So we say things like, I hope my team wins the championship. You mean you wish that your team would win. Or we say, I hope that I get that job. What we're really saying is, I would wish that I would get that job. But that's not what real biblical hope is. It's not the hope that you have from God. The hope that you have for your future in God is a sure and certain hope because it rests upon God in his power. So this is a prayer that you would see, I really have hope. It's a prayer that you would really have your eyes opened to that. Here's the second thing it says. It says it's a prayer that you would see the glorious inheritance that you have. That's a very religious sounding sort of thing, but this is all that it means. It means a prayer that you would see that you have resources to help you to deal with the situations in your life. A glorious inheritance is the resources and the, the necessities that you have for this moment in your life that you're living in. And I know from experience, it's true for me, oftentimes when I look at my life, I look at the things going on in my life, circumstances, I think, I don't have enough. And you say, you don't have enough what? Enough anything. I think, I don't have enough money. Or I don't have enough... Uh, power or control of what's going on in my life, or I don't have enough love. You look at your life and say, I don't have enough. And this prayer is to God to open up our eyes and to say, I not only have enough, but I and each one of us here, we have a glorious inheritance. That means a rich abundance of everything that we need. And the rich abundance that we have, what God wants us to see is not going to come if our circumstances change. Do you see that? Because that's the most important thing here. At the very end, it says that you'll only see these things, the hope that you have, 
and the inheritance that you have, you'll only see those things if God enlightens your eyes. That means that God may not change your circumstances. But what he wants you to see is that in and through the circumstances that are in your life, undergirding them all, it's God's power and presence. And that's where real hope and real power and real love, that's where it really resides. God wants to change us. He wants to change our eyes. Most of the time when we pray, we want other things to change. We want the people around us to change. We want our circumstances to change. Sometimes we don't want to change. But what God wants to do is he wants us to change our vision. And so that's what we've been thinking about over these last number of weeks. We've been looking at this sermon series, and it's called Through New Eyes. And it's predicated upon this, the way we look at things. When God gives us a vision to see things in his perspective, it helps. It gives us a view of the things that we really need. If we see through our own eyes, we're not going to see things accurately. We're not going to see them clearly. And instead, each week we've looked at different ways. We've been looking at the life of David. It's found in First and Second Samuel. That's the main place it's found in the Bible. We've been looking at the life of David and to look in his life and think, how was he able to see through new eyes? How did God give him that gift? So each week, if you've been here, it's been seeing through new eyes, seeing other people through new eyes. And it's been seeing ourselves through new eyes. And it's been seeing God's uh, mercy and forgiveness through new eyes. Today, though, it's going to be a little unique. It's something that I'm excited about because in this passage that we're going to look at, it comes from 2 Samuel 7. We're going to see how God is going to show us through new eyes. He's going to show us himself. So the focus this week is going to be on God. That's who we want to see through new eyes. Now, I want to take a step back here. Every sermon at Renaissance Church, we want it to be one where we see God. Every single sermon at Renaissance Church, we want it to be one where we see the glory of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives. We want that to be every sermon. But this was sort of unique because if you look throughout First and Second Samuel, the life of David, or if you look throughout the whole Old Testament, the way that God talks in 2 Samuel about himself, 2 Samuel 7, is really unique. So that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to look at it in three ways. God wants us to see him. And what my prayer has been for you this week, I was just praying for you this, this morning, is that you would be able to see three things about God. The first thing is I want you to see through new eyes that God is a God with his people. He is the gracious God and he's also the forever God. That's the three things that God talks about here that I want us to see. The first one we're going to look at is the God with his people, the God we worship. The God of the Bible is the God with his people. It comes from 2 Samuel 7. If you have a Bible that you brought along, you're going to want to look ahead long, but you're going to see it on these, uh, these boards right here. But when you get to 2 Samuel 7, here's the context. I'm going to give you the context. David is the king, and he's been really successful as king. And he has put down all his enemies. People have been harassing God's people for a long time, but David's a good king, and he's put down his enemies. He's gotten really successful. He's also gotten really rich. And one of the ways you know he's really rich is he lives in a house of cedar. Does anybody here have a house of cedar? They, it's very luxurious, and it smells great. Well, back then, it was very, very expensive to have a house of cedar. David had a house of cedar. So with all this success, his enemies at bay, lots of riches and a great house, he gets a great idea. He says, I've made it, 
and I have a great house, so I'm going to build a great house for God. That's what I'm going to do. And he proposes this idea to Nathan, who is his main pastor and minister. And David hears that idea, and he says, you're right. You have a great house. You want to build a great house for God, a temple? That really is a wonderful idea. But David goes home that night to bed, and Nathan goes home that night to bed, and Nathan has a dream, and God speaks to him in the dream, and he says, hey, Nathan, um, it's not a great idea at all that David would build me a temple. Tell him not to do that. I do not want him to build me a house. I don't want him to build me a temple. This is what God says. Look at this, verse four. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day that I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for a dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? God's saying, don't build me a house. I didn't ever ask anybody to build me a house. So God here says, no, 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 I don't want you to build my house, but here's the most important thing to see. God gives a reason as to why he doesn't want David to build him a house. And here's the reason. Take a look at verse six. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling in all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel. He says, I don't live in a tent. I don't live in a temple. I live with my people. That's who he is. God is saying, if you want to know the God that I am, I am the God who is with his people. If you know, want to know where I am, that's where I'm at. I don't want to live in a temple. I don't want to live in a beautiful house far away somewhere, wherever my people are. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt and they were traveling in the desert, I was with them. That's who I wander with. That's who I roll with. That's who I go with. I go with my people. Our God is the God who is with his people. Now, let's rest on that for a second. Can we just stay here for a second? Because you hear that, and I don't know how it lands with you, but you might think, okay, that's, yeah, it sounds about right for a sermon. God is with his people. But think about the application there. Think about the practicality of that. Think about how many times you yourself or other people have said, where is God you ever have that question, where is God right now in all of this, in this trouble or in this struggle? Where is God? And it's my job as a pastor to point out what the scriptures say. And at least in this instance, the scriptures say, where is God? He's with his people. If you want to know where he is, he's right with all of you right now. He's with his people. That's where he chooses to be. He doesn't choose to be in a temple. He doesn't choose to be in a house of cedar. He doesn't want that. He's the God that goes with his people. And if you want to think about this practically, and I want you to think about it practically, think about the reverse. Think about what it would mean for God to live in a temple. God says, no, I'm with my people. Well, what if God lived in a temple? What would that mean? It would mean that God lived there, wherever there was. If you wanted to know where God was, you say, where is God? Well, he's not here. He's there. Where does he live? He lives in the temple. Well, how do you get to God? You've got to go to the temple. That's where he is. So if you want to get to God, you've got to go to where he lives. You think, well, how, how do I get there? Well, you get up there, you have to go to where he is. Is God where I'm at right now? No, he's in the temple. I'm in my kitchen right now. Is God with me in my kitchen? No, 
He's in a temple. Is he with me at my workplace? No, he's not at your workplace. He's in the temple. And anytime you would have to consider where is God's presence in this, you'd have to think, well, that's where he is. And if you want to get to where he is, you have to go. But God says, no, no, no. I'm not going to live in a temple. I'm going to live with my people. Wherever they're at, that's where I'm going to be. So if you feel like right now, I'm in a dark place, God is with you. God is present with you in whatever reality you're in. If you think right now, I'm in a really discouraged place, I'm not doing well, God is with you. He has come to you. He's not gonna wait for you to go to him. If you think right now, I'm in some pretty sinful situations. I'm in a place where I am not, God is with you. He is present with you, and God doesn't want you to be in the dark. He doesn't want you to be discouraged. He doesn't want you to be in sin, but God is not going to wait for you to get your stuff right and make your way to the temple and go do all the things that you need to do to get there. He comes all the way down to where you are at. It's the same thing that the gospels say about Jesus. They say, you can call him Jesus, but he's got another name too. His name is Emmanuel. What's that mean? It means God with us. So if you want to know where God is, he's right there with you. He's not in a temple. God says, don't build me a temple. I don't want to be somewhere far away from my people. I'm going to be with my people. Temples are really beautiful places. I love temples. I love churches. I live in New York City, and it's got all those beautiful, wonderful churches. And I love going through them. But sometimes when you go to a church, have you ever noticed this? Sometimes it gets a little confusing. You go to a church, and everybody stands up at the same time, and you didn't know you were supposed to stand up. Has that ever happened to you? Everybody stands up, and just as you're beginning to stand up, they all kneel, and you, oh, shoot, you gotta, you gotta kneel. And then everybody says the same thing all at once. Now, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. I've worked in churches where it's very liturgical, and people say things and kneel and stand up. I think that's good. I've worked in other churches where that's not the case. It seems a little more informal. But the truth is, no matter what happens in a church, God says, it isn't about you doing the right thing or saying the right thing or knowing the right prayers. It's certainly not about dressing the right way. You know, one of the things I love about Renaissance Church, I've been coming here for a long time, and I love that there's no dress code here. I know that some people come here and they wear T-shirt and jeans, and everybody says, great. And I know other people, they come here and they wear suits and dresses, and they look great. And everybody says, great. But there's no dress code. There's no certain thing that you have to say or a certain thing that you have to do or a certain way you have to look because God's with his people. And he comes and he's present with us and we can live with each other and love one another and care for one another no matter what we look like. Because God is with his people. He's not in a temple. You know, in a temple, there's insiders and there's outsiders. Just by very virtue of the fact that there's a building, some people are in the building and some people are outside of the building. How do you get inside? Well, there's all kinds of different ways to get into a temple. Sometimes you have to say the right thing or do the right thing or pay the right amount of money. Now, we have a building here at Renaissance. That's a practicality. You have to have a building for people to gather in. But knowing that our God is one who doesn't live in a temple, it should teach us about how we use this building. It should teach us about how we think about what this structure even is. And we should think about questions like, are there certain people that shouldn't be coming to this building? Should we think about, uh, are there certain things that people have to do to get into the building? Are there certain people that we need to keep out of the building? 
And the answer to all that question has to be informed by God saying, oh, I'm with my wandering people. I go with my people. God says, as long as any of my people are wandering, I'm with them. That's what Jesus says. Do you remember what Jesus says? He says, you know, I'm like a good shepherd. And when I'm out in the wilderness with my sheep, my hundred sheep, if even one of those hundred gets lost, what I'm going to do is I'm going to leave the 99 in the wild and I'm going to go and find that one. Do you know what that means? It means Jesus is not a very good businessman. (laughs) See, I'm a terrible businessman. I cannot balance my checkbook in my hand. It falls off every single time. But I do know that if you're a business person and you get 99% return on the 100 that you give out, you think that's good. And I'm not going to risk the 99 to go and save the one. But I do know a man who will. The Lord Jesus Christ is a good shepherd. He's with his people. And as long as any of his people are wandering, he's going to go with them. And he's not going to rest until he's going to gather all of us in. So this gives us a picture through new eyes of what God is like. He is the God who is with his people. Now, what does that mean for us? How can we apply this as a church, as individuals? And what it means is that if God doesn't live in a temple, it means how we think about this building, but also how we think about our ministry should change. It should inform how we think about it because if God is amongst us, if God is with each one of us, it means we have a great opportunity to take the love of God out with us, that the Holy Spirit can send us out and we can be God's people, that we can in some ways bring God's love with us because he is with us. It reminds me a little bit of that story that Jesus told Jesus was talking about who we should love and how we should love them. He said, you should love your neighbor as yourself. And somebody raised their hand in the class and said, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus didn't answer the question. Instead, what he did was what he usually did. He told a story. He told a story about a man who was traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem. And it was a lonely road and it was a hard road and the man was set upon by robbers and he was injured and he was robbed and he was left for dead. And there he was in the road and walking by came a priest and the priest just walked by. And then a little bit later, a preacher walked by, somebody that liked to study the Bible and just kept walking by. And then a Samaritan, the traditional enemies of the Jews, a Samaritan walked by and knelt down and provided for that person, paid for them to be healed, and took them to a place where they could have rest. So this is the story that Jesus tells to the story, who is my neighbor? And what that means is that Jesus didn't answer the question. Somebody said, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, you should be a neighbor. And so now, David says, I'm going to build you a temple, God. And God says, I don't want you to build me a temple. Be a temple. You should go out into the world and be a temple. Be a place where people can experience through word and deed God's love and God's care because God is going to be with you. The first thing is God is a God who is with his people. That's our first point. Here's the second one. He is the gracious God. The way that God talks here shows him to be a gracious God. After God tells David that he doesn't want him to build him a temple, God also points out how silly it is that David even made the offer. Because you remember why David makes the offer? David makes the offer because he's like, I've done pretty well. Uh, I put all my enemies down 
I'm pretty rich. You should smell my house. I'm doing, you know, started from the bottom. Now I'm here. Um, And he says, now I'm going to build you a house, God. And in the Hebrew, God replies to him, are you kidding me right now? That's basically what it says. Look at verse eight. Look at verse eight. I took you from the pasture, from from following the sheep. Look at, he's a shepherd. He's following the sheep. Did you notice that? Shepherds are not supposed to be following the sheep. He's following animals around. He's a little kid. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I'm the one that made you great. And I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. I did all this for you, and now you're going to do something for me? You can almost see the smile on God's face, a fatherly smile of a kid who does not know what he's talking about. And these words are not only for David, they're for us too. And they're to help us see through new eyes that our God is gracious. And gracious here doesn't mean, you know, sometimes we say gracious and we mean thoughtful. What a gracious person or kind. But gracious doesn't mean that. Gracious biblically means giving someone something that they absolutely need, but they can never do for themselves and they don't deserve. That's what graciousness is. That's what grace is. Something you absolutely need. You can't live without it, that you can't do for yourself, and that you don't really deserve. And that's who God is. He is a gracious God for you. And that's who he wants to be, and that's who he delights to be for you, so gracious to you. And he's not waiting for you to do something wonderful for him. Many religions consist of something like an idea like that. If you do something good, then something good will come back to you. If you do something really wonderful, then God will do something wonderful for you. If you do good works, they will balance out all the crummy things that you did. Maybe. Hmm. And God says, well, that's just not how I work. I am a gracious God. Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace, just a free gift. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. No one may boast. That's the key here for David. Because think if Nathan hadn't told him not to build that temple. Think if God hadn't. God is stopping him from something really dangerous here. If he thinks that his life is such that he's like, man, I did pretty great. I did all this stuff, and then I built God a temple. You know he probably would have put a little plaque on the side that said, built by David. I think he would have. He says, I did this. And he would have felt pretty great. Each time he walked by, he would have seen all the people going into the temple. He said, I did this. And the tragedy of that is what it would have been doing to him on the inside. Because when you and I don't see the graciousness of God, we are missing what is really real. Can we do a little thought experiment? Just a little thing. Just just be quiet now for a second and, and, and think. I want you to think about the very best things in your life. I want you to think, just bring to mind a few, a couple of the things that you really, really think are the wonderful things in your life. The book of James, it says, every good and perfect gift comes down to you from the Father of lights above. Think about those things that you just thought of. Those are gifts 
to you from God. Think about what a gift is. You know when you buy a gift from somebody and you're excited that they're gonna get it? You know how it's gonna make them feel? You know it's gonna light them up inside? That's what God does for you with the people in your life that you love and the lovely things that you get to see and taste and experience. All those are gifts. They're all evidence that when we see through new eyes, we're gonna see the graciousness of God. He is a gracious God. Your relationship with God begins with him and sustained by him, and it's gonna be completed by him. He doesn't say, if you do good things for me, I will love you. God says to you, I love you. I'd really like you to love me back. Will you love me back? I'm gonna do great things for you. Would you like to do great things with me? I'll do great things through you. That's what he's done for David. He's done great things through David, and David is at risk of losing sight of that, of thinking that it has something to do with him. And if you guys don't see that, we're gonna get things really twisted. I want you to imagine, let's say you came from a family that was a really good family. Let's say your parents loved you well growing up. And let's say that they taught you good things. Let's say they introduced you to the faith and brought you to church. And now your life has turned out pretty well. You run the risk of beginning to think, you know, I come from pretty good people. I'm a, I'm a pretty good person myself. And then you can begin to look at the people around you and think, I wonder why they haven't gotten it right. You'll begin to see people through really bad eyes. You'll, be able to, you'll begin to see even God through eyes that are completely untrue. Or you might even be the kind of person who maybe you did not grow up in a home where you were loved well or taken care of well, but maybe you pulled yourself up. Maybe you worked hard. Maybe you were able to get somewhere, and then you get there and you think, I did do this. Man, I had all the cards stacked against me, and I was able to do this. You'll begin to look around, and you'll think the same thing. I wonder why some of these other people can't get this right. And through this all, God continues to say, I am a gracious God. And David points out, God points out that David is sort of silly to think that the things that he has done are somehow because of him. So this is my encouragement to you from this point. Look at the things of your life that are good as gifts from God. He is a gracious God. Look at the relationship that you have with God, even if it's tenuous, even if it's difficult, even if your faith is hanging on by a thread, he's committed to you and it's not going to be undone by anything that you do. It's the second thing. It's God is the gracious God. Here's the last one. And it's that he's the forever God. This last thing that God tells David is pretty funny. He says, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David says, I'm gonna build you a house. God says, just hang on. Why don't I make you a house? How about that? Now think about that. We've already covered that David already has a house. He has a nice one. He has a beautiful house. But God says, you know what? Now that you've brought up all this house stuff, I'm gonna build you a house. What does he mean by that? David already has a house. And the answer lies in the fact that in the Hebrew, the word house has a multiplicity of meanings the same way that it does in English. In English, the word house can mean lots and lots of different things. It can mean the building that you live in at home where you go to bed at night with windows and doors. That's a house. But house can also mean household. It can mean a whole lineage, a dynasty, like the royal family in England. They're the house of Windsor. That's a different kind of meaning. And that's the meaning that God is saying here. God is saying, I'm gonna build something even bigger than just a building for you, David. 
I'm going to build a dynasty. I want there to be a king on the throne who is good and that this kingship will last forever. He says, I'm going to be the forever God. I've put somebody on the throne, you, and I've done good things for you, and I want you to rule my people in love and justice and truth, and I want that to continue on forever. And I'm going to do it in such a way that it's never going to end and it's always going to last. Look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, David, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. There's going to be sons that come. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. He said there's going to be a line. There's going to be a dynasty. There's always going to be a king on the throne because I want to be a forever God. I don't want this to be short term. And my kingship through you, what I'm going to build, this house, it's going to last forever and nothing can overcome it. Nothing at all. Sin can't overcome it. Take a look here at verse, what is it, 15? I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, talking about one of David's sons, when he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. He's saying, your sons are gonna screw up too and I'm gonna be committed to them too. In fact, David's son Solomon screws up pretty bad. And God says, I'm still going to be committed. This house that I'm going to be build, it's never going to fall. Nothing is going to tear it apart. Not sin, not even death. Look at verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In 2 Samuel 7, the word forever is used eight times. God says this is going to last forever, and I'm going to do it forever, and it's going to go on forever. And you know, the word forever, that's, those are lovers' words. That's what lovers say to each other. That's what people who are in love, you say, I'll love you forever. No, you won't. Probably 30 or 40 years. That's probably about what you have. Uh, you know, and the far end of it, maybe 45 or 50. Forever isn't going to really happen for anybody. And, but we say those things. Why do we say them? Because we mean them. We have this big feeling in our heart. I'm going to love you forever. And so this just must be elevated language. This is just God talking a good game, right? No. When God says forever, he means forever. When God commits to being our forever God, he means forever. And the way he can be our forever God, the way this house can be forever that God is going to build comes about because of a reality that I was talked about, talking about with somebody in the cafe last week. Uh, last week, somebody came up to me in the cafe and they said, I've been studying the Bible a little bit and it says, why does it say that Jesus is the son of David? I said, that's a pretty good question. He said, you know, I was looking at the very first words of the New Testament. Do you all know what the very first words of the New Testament are? The very first words of the gospel? It says, the book of the gospel, the son of David, Jesus, the son of David. And this is the answer to all these questions as to how God can be our forever God because Jesus Christ came to be a king who is forever and establish a throne, establish a house which is forever. And that house and throne and kingship that Jesus has established can't be undone by anything. It can't be undone by sin. Do you think the kingship of Jesus can be undone by your sin? 
In 2 Peter, it says that Jesus Christ bore your sins in his body on the tree so that you would live to righteousness. There's nothing you can do to undo the good kingship of Jesus for you. Can death undo the kingship of Jesus? No. Because on the third day, God raised up his son from the grave and he's been triumphant over the grave. Jesus Christ is the one who can make it sure and fast and true that he is our forever God. And the truth is, is that Jesus wraps up all of these things, all of these things that we've been talking about, Jesus Christ being the gracious God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and loves us and cares for us. Jesus Christ, the Christ, the God who is with us, do you remember what Jesus was asked? They said, Jesus, we want to go to your house. Do you remember what he said? He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but I have no place to lay my head. And that's because he goes with his people. He is with his people all the way, and he will be as with his people as long as they wander. You guys know the end of that good hymn, Come Thou Fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the Lord I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. You don't even need to give him your heart, you should, but he'll take it anyway, and he'll make it secure because he is the forever God. He's the king that's gonna be on the throne forever forever. 